welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, As I mentioned before, I am Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Uh, Welcome again to the second Sunday of Advent. Let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we wait for your help. You don't wait for ours. And in those places that we've built idols or temples for them, to worship the desires of our imaginations, would you tear them down? And in their place, would you rebuild a temple for your presence, where your glory is known and where your name is praised? And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I remember reading a great book over the last year uh, on organizational leadership. And one of the things that they did in that book is they looked at a snapshot of an unhealthy organization, and then they walked it back to the root causes of how the organization got to be that way. Things had started well for that organization. There was a skilled team of just a few men and women who had been passionate about building a great business in the early days. And even though things had been going well, things didn't stay well. Things didn't go the way they had started. And the reason why is occasionally there would be a little bit of an insertion of somebody's ego here. There would be a little bit of unresolved conflict over there. Somewhere else there was a small grab for power. And then ultimately the siloing of the different work of the different executives, ultimately creating a toxic environment of competition and mistrust among one another rather than collaboration and a sense that the organization is more important than my own personal ego. So that dysfunction went from the executives all the way down to the middle management and then to everybody else. And the result of that was that the turnover for the company was much higher than other companies in that same market. Things didn't bode well for the company without some kind of radical shift and the organization was doomed to fail. But eventually what they did is they let go of the CEO And then they hired a new CEO from outside, somebody who wasn't necessarily familiar with that particular market or kind of business, but they were really good at building uh, teams and project management. And it was a painful process of cleansing that happened in which half of the executive team at that point had been either let go or they left voluntarily. And, And while it was painful, it was also very clarifying for the organization. The company now had clear goals. It had healthy processes for dealing with conflict. It had proper channels of communication. And then it had more transparency and accountability than it ever had. Trust had been restored amongst the different employees and the middle management and then the executive team. However, there were some within the organization who really liked the old way of doing things. They thought that it rested on their shoulders to preserve the old way of doing it. 
um, the ways that things had always been done. And in all reality, they hadn't always been done that way, but that's what they remembered. And it was actually a snowballing of bad habits that produced the it's always been done this way kind of culture. And that culture devoured the original goals of the organization and the vision of the company. So what does that have to do with the second Sunday of Advent? Good question. On the second Sunday of Advent, we are confronted with toxic leaders uh, who themselves have now become the obstacle for, that, are, that are keeping people from God. But you hear a lot of it in the different readings from 1 Corinthians. You heard it in the Gospel of Luke and you heard it in Malachi. And it shows up in our gospel passage partly in what we read this morning. But if you go a few more verses, we encounter John the Baptist. This guy who in the icons has this really crazy hair. He's got a belt on, no shirt. He's eating locusts, wild honey, out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, preaching that people need to turn from their sins. And then in verses six and following in the gospel, he addresses the crowds. And you can imagine what an amazing, you know, seeker sensitive preacher he was. He says, hey, you guys are a brood of vipers. (laughs) And then he tells them, you know, not to rely on your own lineage. Like, don't don't think that because you're from Abraham, you're going to be spiritually okay in God's eyes. That's not good enough. And then he says, you know, because, again, he's being super sensitive. He says, even now, the axe is being laid at the root of the trees. Right. You can see what he's saying. In other words, for these people who are listening to John the Baptist, it's repentance from sin and faith in the Messiah that are the path forward in their relationship with God. It's not their physical lineage to Abraham. And so you can't just believe uh, or say you believe and then do whatever you want and expect that that's okay. So then we come to something similar. We come back a couple hundred years to the book of Malachi. Last week we were in Zechariah the prophet, who and in uh, this prophet Malachi is prophesying about the same time period. He's confronting post-exilic groups in Israel, so those who had come back from Babylon, those who may have remained during the exile. Uh, but this is during the Persian period; those who are now in Israel. Even after that period of exile, you would think you would think that things would have been purified and made well. But it seems like problems persisted. And so even though the exile did have somewhat of a purifying effect, our memories are often short, right? And I imagine this is true for them. It's like, wow, I'm glad we got out of that. And then they forget. And this is what happens with many of us as well. So they blocked out the wilderness period that God had just brought them through. And they turned away again. And the prophets then... When we get to Zechariah, Malachi, we're going to look at Zephaniah uh, next week. When we, when we get to these prophets, what we're encountering is something like covenant enforcers. People who are calling God's people back to faithfulness to the covenant with him. In our passage today, God's people have moved away from God's heart. And then we, they went through the motions of religious ceremony. Uh, only enough that they would feel self-justified. It was true of the priests. It was true of the people. But going through those motions was to the neglect of actually living in loving union with their creator. So the church, you might get to the church. The church is an institution. And that's not 
an inherently bad thing. Institutions provide safety. They provide accountability. They provide consistency. Institutions are very attractive when they're done well. And the church is a special kind of institution. Tim Keller describes the church as an organized organism. I like that phrase, an organized organism, getting both aspects of a movement and an institution. And what makes the institution of the church more attractive to people is when its leaders and its members are living out an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ that permeates every part of our lives. And this passage then, what it calls us to, it calls us to be attentive to the things that are broken. It calls us to grieve the things that we are asking God to tear down. There is a little bit of a death in asking God to tear things out. And then it's, it's asking us to trust that what God's building is actually going to produce in us true loving union with Christ. So I want to look this morning at Malachi chapter 3. The people and their priests, if we go back one verse to 2.17, they posed a question to God. And that question shows how far their hearts were removed from the Lord. They said, it says that God has become wearied by their words. We know that God doesn't get tired, right? But it's likely that by wearying here, God's come to the end of his patience with these words that he is hearing from the people. The people are complaining about the state of justice in Israel. It seems like they're in a place where those who do evil are acceptable to God. While subsequently asking where the God of justice is, they know that God said he's just, but God, where are you just? Because I don't see it. This is what they're asking. And in this context of Malachi, he's specifically addressing the evil of the priests. That's something that's throughout the book. The priests have been offering uh, impure sacrifices. And in post-exilic Israel, the priests were necessary for following the Lord. Remember, this is before Jesus came. So through their rituals, what the priests did was they provided the people the purification that they needed to approach God. So doing the sacrifices properly wasn't a small matter. That was actually really important because what was at stake was your covenant faithfulness to God. One author I was reading this week helpfully described the priests as boundary setters. They were the ones who were supposed to discern between what was sacred, what was common, between what was clean, what was unclean. And then their function was to teach those boundaries to the people. And then when they transgressed, they were supposed to provide the cleansing that was needed so that the people could be restored to God. They were to be the restorers of the people. And so that makes priests being impure far worse in this passage. Non-functioning priests are bad. Uh, Worse is badly functioning priests. And it's a big deal in Israel. It was almost as if the priest's attitude were like there was a, a thick line that separated the sacred and then everything else. And as long as I can get my minimal obligations done in my job uh, with God, I can do whatever else I want with my time. And they didn't even really meet the minimal requirements for their job. Behind that thought of the priest is this idea that God needs me and God needs my system. It's a type of presumption where I think that I've made myself irreplaceable to God's saving plan for other people. The people here are complaining to God. 
And, and they're doing so rightly, right? Because what they're saying is that God, the system is broken. The leaders are corrupt. And God, you don't seem to be listening. So God says in verse one that he's going to send his messenger. That's the first way he addresses it. I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way. There's going to be a day coming where the messenger is going to come. And he is going to purify things in preparation for the Lord's coming. That purification is compared to a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. That cleansing process is not an easy one. It's a difficult process. It's a painful process. I think back to that story of the CEO who had stepped in and had to create a new culture out of what was. And she had lots of conversations with people trying to understand why they were doing what they were doing. She had to have hard conversations about, you know, this is the way things are going to be now. Would you like to join me in that journey? And if the answer was no, then she had to help them see that their deepest desire was not actually for the good of that organization. And that conversation is never an easy one. It's often fraught with hurt feelings. It's often fraught with deep resentments. But it was a necessary kind of cleansing in that organization for that organization to function properly. The church is a place that often needs purification. And that purification process is not an easy one. It involves attentiveness to the things that are broken, being honest. It involves grieving for what we are asking God to tear down. There's a little bit of a death in the things we're comfortable with. And then it involves trusting that what God is building in us individually and corporately is loving union with Christ. There was going to be a deep cleansing coming for this sacrificial system. The result of that cleansing in verse 4 was that the offering of Judah... And Jerusalem would be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. There seems to have been this trickle down effect from the corruption of the priests that was happening among the people. In verse five, it says that God was drawing near for judgment. And that was answering finally this this question that had been burning in Israel. Where is the God of justice? He's answering the question. God, when he answers them, he says, yes, I am indeed coming But when I come, it may not be in the way that you like. The corrupted system had a deep effect on the ways that people were following God's covenant law or not following it. Verse five says that God is going to come in judgment as a swift witness against several kinds of covenant breakers. And here he lists some specific ones from the from the book of Deuteronomy. Sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely. Those who are oppressing the vulnerable. Namely, he mentions the hired laborer, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. And while it can be popular in American evangelicalism to draw a thick, thick line between care for someone's eternal destiny and care for someone's temporal well-being. In God's covenant with Israel, these two things get bound up very tightly. And the new covenant, I think, also binds up these two things very tightly as well. And that's why when you read the New Testament, you come to the epistle from St. James, and he can say something like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace 
be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we have to be a people who consider deeply, who consider deeply the witness that our faith is giving to people about the good news of Jesus Christ. We look forward to the day when Jesus is going to come again, when he's finally going to cleanse the injustices and the other obstacles that keep us and others from seeing the glory of God. And note that injustices that we see around us, they stem from hearts that haven't been cleansed of sin or particular sins. And so you and I, while there is an aspect of activism to our faith, that activism is never to the neglect of being a contemplative with God, asking God to cleanse our own hearts first. This passage isn't just about clergy. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if we're like, well, yeah, that's great for you and Father Ryan, but uh, what about me? Uh, you know, it's actually God's people. And the reason why is that when you read 1 Peter 2, it calls the church a royal nation and a holy priesthood, right? We are all priests in the Lord. And so the reason for that, the, the, the reason for this is that the world experiences Christ through you and through me. And whether we like it or not, that means that in some way we actually kind of mediate Christ functionally to people. And I've heard others say that the church, I've heard him say it this way, the church is a sacrament to the world. And I like that. In other words, the church is the outward invisible sign of an inward spiritual real grace that has a real effect on the world around us. So how does our world experience Christ in us? I can't answer that question. I can pose it. It's something for us to reflect on. How does the world experience Christ in us? And that, that's a scary thing to ask, uh, to ask God. It's a scary thing to ask God to cleanse us. Because we often don't know how deep the brokenness goes in our souls. It's the recognition that God doesn't actually need our help. That I am completely dependent on God's help. Um, it means that I recognize that my years are going to be short uh, and that I'm not going to last forever. It means that I'm opening myself up to God, tearing down those things that I find comfortable so that he can build them back up again in his will. It also involves getting to know my neighbors and listening to the needs that they have, the injustices they might experience, the exploitation of the vulnerable who are in proximity to me. And when we think back to Jesus's great commission to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, you and I have been invited to be bearers of the good news of Jesus to other people around us. It's shown not just in the words that we say, but it's shown also in the deeds that we do. And this passage then challenges me uh, to avoid becoming the obstacle for other people to experience Jesus. It should challenge us all that way. We do not want to be the obstacle to somebody seeing Jesus. And so what does that mean? What do we have to do? We have to be attentive to those things that are broken. We have to be honest. And then we need to grieve those places that there's loss. There is a kind of death when we ask God to tear things down. And then we have to trust that what God is actually building is going to bring loving union with Christ. 
So I want to go back to the CEO again and the hard work of all her conversations. What ended up resulting from her conversations was this more efficient uh, company that reflected the mission and values that they had set forth. It had a healthier culture at this point. It was hard to get, uh, it was hard work to get to that point for the company. And I imagine that there were times that she just wanted to give up to let things slide because it was easier to let things slide or to give up altogether. But she didn't give up. She pressed on. And the end result was the clearing of what shouldn't have been there. And in clearing what shouldn't have been there, there was the potential to rebuild what should be there. And so whether we're talking about corruption in the days of Malachi or whether we're talking about the hypocrisy of the religious people and professionals during the days of John the Baptist or the failures of modern day clergy or we're talking about the brokenness in our own hearts. God wants to clear out what shouldn't be there in his grace. It's a purifying, painful experience, but it is a grace filled experience and because he wants to replace it with his abiding presence. So even though it's painful and slow in that process of clearing out, we need to ask God to clear out those deep places of brokenness and dysfunction that keep us from loving union with Jesus. But it's the only way to new life, the new life that God has for us. And it's the only way that people are going to know God's love through you and through me. Let me pray for us as we close. This prayer comes from an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. Lord, you, you sweep away and purge. Sweep yet the systems of disobedience all around us. Sweep yet the networks of self-securing that we treasure. Sweep yet our own childhoods that trap us. Sweep yet our own little loves that disable us. Sweep yet our little fears that rob us of you. Sweep yet and make new. Do your Friday sweep again. And suit us for your Sunday governance. Amen.